we realized by having a home equity line of credit, you could write $50,000 checks into investments and create massive compounding really quick and almost like accelerate the speed at which you were accumulating. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Fi Show. We're excited because today we have on Adam Carroll, who's going to talk to us about the shred method. We can use that HELOC loan to all of its advantages, some mindset stuff such as shared ownership and things that led him to leave the corporate world to more of an entrepreneurial lifestyle. But before we get into all that, let's check in with the co-host, Cody. What have you been up to, man? Well, I had a pretty fun weekend this past weekend. So on Saturday, we had a big group of friends. There was like 15 of us who went to the Woo Sox, which is for those of you who aren't from Central Mass, it's the Worcester Red Sox. They just built this new stadium called Polar Park, finished it up at the beginning of this year, actually. And it's been a ton of fun. Like, it's a brand new stadium, awesome concessions, just an overall super cool vibe. The Woo Sox did win that game. We were victorious. Then we went out and hit up a couple local bars later that day. The next day, actually, on Sunday into Monday, I visited my buddy down in Norwalk, Connecticut, which is like 30 minutes outside of New York, right on the edge of Connecticut. You can literally see Long Island from the beach there. And we just caught up, hadn't seen him in a while, and it was a ton of fun. So got to say this weekend was a success on the fun meter. How about you, Justin? Well, we're actually still out in LA. We're house sitting for a friend who's got an adorable little French bulldog named Hugo. And we're out kind of near Manhattan Beach, if you're familiar with the area. And this weekend was a good time. Like most of it was just kind of relaxing around on like Friday night, Saturday morning. But then we went and did some actually test driving some vehicles. So I'm considering buying uh, an actual new vehicle. I know that's the FI police are probably going to come after me for that one. But, uh, you know, once you get to a certain point in the journey, I think, you know, start enjoying it a little bit. Sunday, uh, we have a friend out there who I met through the Air Force who's stationed out here, who's actually swimming between Hermosa Beach Pier and Manhattan Beach Pier, which I can't imagine doing like a two mile swim in ocean water, like horizontally across it. Like, I don't know. That's just, <laughs> that's next level to me. I would have drowned swallowing so much salt water. But uh, yeah, so we're here for another little over a week. I'm just enjoying our two week stay here in Los Angeles. But now that you got a good take on what we've been up to, let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote-unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. All righty. So on today's episode, we have Adam Carroll. 
Adam Carroll has been a leader in the personal finance space for over a decade now. This guy has multiple TED Talks. He has spoken at over a thousand universities, high schools, all sorts of different events. And we were super lucky to have him on, share some of his money mindset, share his story, talk about what Justin briefly mentioned at the beginning, the shred method, where basically you're using your HELOC as your checking account. And you'll understand once we get into the episode why that is so powerful and how if you do have that extra discretionary income coming in month over month, how you can pay your mortgage off incredibly fast. We also cover a bunch more on mindset, including shared ownership, building a value list to help you prioritize what is important to you and where you should be focusing your time and so much more in this episode. It's a great breakdown, Cody. People definitely want to go check out this HELOC method. It's something that's not talked about just a ton in the personal finance space. So it's a unique thing you could learn and a tactical tool you could use in the tool belt. If you want to get the links to Adam's resources and just the general show notes for the show, you can do that at thefyshow.com slash Adam. That's thefyshow.com slash Adam. Take it away, Adam. The story goes that my dad was a very abundant guy. He had an abundant mindset all the way growing up. And, and so I grew up believing that we were this mass affluent family because we had, we had everything. Like we had a nice house and, and all the trappings that that would, that would entail. We traveled, we ordered stuff from J. Crew when the catalog came, that kind of thing, you know? And he always laughs because he's like, oh God, we, we didn't have enough money. We didn't have two nickels to rub together. You know, we were not, we were definitely not affluent. We were lower middle class, if anything. And I think what I learned growing up was that I had this impression of what what being successful or financially successful was. And my folks were just trying to create a lifestyle for us. And what they didn't tell us was that it was going on credit card every month. And I didn't really find that out until I'd been in college and I had taken on those behaviors. So, you know, I was a 22-year-old recent college graduate with $27,000 in student loans, eight grand in credit card debt. I was upside down in my car. My dog had just died at home. My girl had left me at school. You know, it was like a bad country Western song. <laughs> so your your parents are kind of given this facade where you, you think everything's fine. You think that's just kind of normal. Anyways, you, you probably don't even understand what kind of like debt's going on in the background. You've racked up your own debt. At what point do you start seeing that? Not that it's not normal because it's obviously it is normal. It is what most families are going through, but maybe that it's not the best route. You know, it was actually a woman that I met my senior year in college, who is now my wife, and we've been married for 21 years. So it's it was a really welcome chance meeting, getting in touch with her. But when she heard my story and, and knew my situation, she said, listen, you got to get rid of your dad or I'm going to get rid of you. And I was like, faced with this very straight ultimatum of what to do. And we had a long conversation about it, about how she was raised, how I was raised, and we came to the conclusion that we didn't want to live this way. If we were going to be together, we wanted to live differently than both of our parents lived. And so it was probably, we got married at the age of 24. And from 24 to 26, we lived on one income. And the reason we did that was, we number one, we wanted to figure out, could we live on one income? And number two, with the other income, could we blast away every ounce of debt we had? And we did it in about 25 months. We paid off close to $50,000 in student loans, car loans, credit cards. And from that point forward, that's where I felt, I feel like I was in the FI environment before FI was a thing because, you know, we were living on one income. The two of us together could live very comfortably on a couple thousand dollars a month. And the rest was going into building investments and creating a future that we wanted to live. 
So I would say my early to mid 20s. And then I got really intentional about teaching it in my late 20s and 30s. And today, you know, I'm in, I'm in my mid 40s, but I feel like we've, we've created the lifestyle that we most want and get to live it on a daily basis. So that's pretty atypical for someone in their mid 20s, especially decades ago. Now there's so many tools at our fingertips, like Justin and I had all these podcasts, we had all these YouTube videos, all these books that kind of talked about early retirement, financial independence, living on wedding income. But, you know, you don't really have that. I'm guessing, was there a guide? Was there a book? Was there a mentor that told you like, hey, Adam, you should try this and, you know, pay off your debt, live on one income, invest the rest, and then you can, you know, have this financial freedom thing? Yeah, it's such a good question. At the time, we were living in Denver, Colorado, and there was a radio ad that was playing virtually everywhere. And it was this dude named John Commuta, which probably doesn't mean anything to you guys. But John Commuta was a publisher and he figured out he could self-publish these books. And the book was called the debt, or it was called Debt into Wealth, I think is what it was called. Essentially, what he did was he taught you how to do the snowball method, could be the avalanche. And then he taught a couple other really specific strategies, which I'll talk about later. And when I read it, I was like, this is brilliant. And why don't more people do this? And so my wife and I, because I think the way we were wired partially, we followed the book to the letter, literally everything that he said to do, we did. And it allowed us to become debt-free within, within a couple of years. It wasn't until like maybe five years later that I was introduced to Financial Peace. And Dave Ramsey had published that book. And then he published The Total Money Makeover. Well, I read that and was like, he's, I've been doing that for seven years now. You know, so. <laughs> but John Commuta was like the OG. He was the original gangster in this space. So, you know, whether it's paying off debt or just like stacking on money, like net worth increases, net worth increase, but it feels different. Like paying off debt, it just feels different. So when you got done paying off the debt, did the urgency change? Did your mindset change or did you just keep going with it? When people talk about paying off debt and they refer to debt payoff fatigue, it's very real. When you're in the middle of it, you know, you're, you're feeling like it's a slog, that it's never going to be paid off. It's taking forever. And we, you know, we had some strategies that John had recommended in the book, but it was things like, you know, put all your debts on the refrigerator, put a big red line through it every time you pay one off, have it all front and center so you know exactly what's there and what's left. We got done with all of our debt payoff. And candidly, you know, we, we had like three to $3,500 a month in discretionary income when we had everything paid off. And when you, when you got an extra like 36 to 40 grand a year at the age of 26, you kind of feel like you're a multimillionaire. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of money. And so we, we took trips and we blew, you know, two or three grand a month for like three or four months and then started realizing what we could do if we got really intentional about that money. And that's where, uh, you know, we started looking into real estate investing and doing you know, some dollar cost average investing, maxing out Roth IRAs, that kind of stuff. But it wasn't really until we had a mortgage big enough that we, really, we were really feeling the pinch of, God, that's a lot of interest that we're paying on that every single month, that we then were like, okay, let's direct this energy into blasting away our mortgage. We've been mortgage-free multiple times in the last seven to nine years. And, uh, and we do it very strategically. But for us, it's just part of FI. Like, we love having fewer bills. And when you can get by, I mean, we have a family of five that gets by on a, on a very, very small amount of money, not because we're scrimping and saving, but 
you know, we just don't have a lot of outside expenses. And so all the extra discretionary is either used to blast away debt or to build real wealth. And I think this is where most people are racing towards. And I feel really good about where we're at in the process and hopefully can inspire other people to do the same because, you know, it takes a little consistency and discipline, but the aftermath is is 100% worth it. So during those first few years when you're paying off the debt and then ultimately starting to invest, were you both in quote unquote traditional jobs or had you dipped your toes into the entrepreneurship waters yet? Yeah, good question. We So my wife is a nurse by trade. She had a great job and she was working at, when we first got married, she was working a weekend package and and then it shifted to an evening package. And so she was gone much of the evenings. I would work all day long. She'd leave at four o'clock or seven o'clock sometimes and then work through the night. So we had limited amounts of time that we were hanging out unless it was weekend or, or there were certain days off she had. So we were both in pretty traditional jobs. I was working for a division of monster.com, the job search company. And I mean, I think if I went back and looked at the numbers, she was making $42,000 a year and I was probably making $38,000 a year or something. She was my sugar mom at the time, you guys. It's a little <laughs> joke we, we have. And now the tables have turned. It wasn't until I met a couple of gentlemen who were, who were really incredible entrepreneurs and got me reading uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad and the Cashflow Quadrant and Think and Grow Rich. They said, read this again and again and again until you get it. And it was probably about five years into our marriage where I was like, hey, I, I have an entrepreneurial itch and I want to go do this. And she was saying, there needs to be a lot of money in the bank. And so there was a book actually that we read together called Smart Couples Finish Rich by David Bach. And in the book, he said, ask your significant other, how much do you need in savings to feel safe and secure at any given point in time? And I remember very distinctly, we were fairly new in our marriage. And, and I said that to my wife and she goes, $20,000. And candidly, you guys, I thought she hit the Listerine too hard that morning because I was like, are you out of your mind? Like, <laughs> that's a lot of money for, uh, for 20 somethings. And then we blast away the debt. We put 20 grand away and she goes, okay, now you can go get creative, take a risk, whatever, because now I feel safe and secure with the amount of money that's there. So it, it probably wasn't until my very late 20s or even potentially early 30s before I had gone all in on entrepreneurship. And by that point, we felt really confident in our ability to, to live on one income. So it felt like we were taking lots of the risk out of the scenario. One of the statements I heard you say earlier, you mentioned like blasting away the debt and that's like and saving up that money to get you comfortable. But you also said and working towards real wealth, which makes me think like, okay, maybe there's some wealth that you don't view as is real. Like w when you said that, was that intentional? You know, it, it, this is such an astute question, Justin. The whole idea of real wealth to me is we are all working towards compound interest, right? Where compound interest just takes over and it it skyrockets. And it's the last few years, right? The last couple doublings are, are where, where the money is really made. And a great example of that, there's a book called The Psychology of Money that just came out not too long ago. And he talks about Warren Buffett, that Warren Buffett is worth $85 billion or something like that right now. And all but 5 billion of it came after he turned 65. And our minds can't really even comprehend that level of exponential growth. But he, you know, he was really good about diligently investing over the long haul to create that compound interest. And when I say real wealth, what I mean is 
there's a lot of people out there that are they're building wealth the slow and steady way. They're putting money in, you know, dollar cost average investing on a monthly basis, month in, month out in Roth IRAs and 401ks. But I kept telling my wife, listen, I want to write 50 and $100,000 checks. So we, I want to figure out how do we do that? And I had a conversation with a, a tax advisor that I used to work with. And he said something that was really, it was really profound when I heard him say it. He said, we have, we have two great expenses in life. Number one is taxes and the other is the interest expense on debt. And so when we look at compound interest, we're all working towards that, that final you know, last two doublings. But at the same time, we're battling our mortgage and the compound, the reverse compound interest of our mortgage. And my goal was, how can we, how can we eliminate taxes and eliminate most of our interest expense on debt? And so it's not entirely possible to eliminate taxes unless you're very, very creative, but we did a pretty good job of it. And then by eliminating our mortgage, we created, we eliminated the interest expense on debt. At that time, and this was you know, several years down the road, we realized by having a home equity line of credit, you could write $50,000 checks into investments and create massive compounding really quick and almost like accelerate the speed at which you were accumulating. So Justin, when I say real wealth, that was kind of what I was looking for was I don't want to see, you know, 500, $1,000 a month limping into the accounts, growing at 6%. I was hoping to, you know, write 50 and $100,000 checks into investments that could sometimes guarantee some, somewhere between 10 and 15%. And you, you're not even aware of those until you can write those size checks, you know, more wholesale type investments. But that's, that's kind of where our mindset was and what we were racing towards. And I think I read somewhere that you paid off your mortgage in like seven years using this HELOC trick. Could you just talk a little bit more about it? I know you briefly mentioned it, but I think it would be a really interesting tactic for some of our listeners. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, it's actually one of the things I'm most passionate about for a couple of reasons, Cody. One is that not only does it help people blast away their mortgage in record time, but the, the sheer amount of student loan debt that's in our system right now. I think the last statistic I saw was there were over 700,000 people who owe over $200,000 in student loans. Whoa. <laughs> and which, which makes me throw up in my mouth just a little bit, you know, when I hear those numbers. And this system would help people eradicate that really quickly. So the method is, uh, we refer to it as the shred method. And the shred method basically uses a home equity line of credit as your checking account. So where most people would deposit their income into a checking account, and then they would pay all their bills out of the checking account, most of them leave a little bit of money in the checking account. Like I'm, gonna, I'm gonna, going to assume for you guys, there are days and maybe weeks throughout the month where you have excess funds sitting in your checking account. Would that be accurate? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I started looking at that saying, it's actually inefficient to have money just sitting in the checking account when you're being charged compound interest elsewhere that you could use it to eliminate it really, really quickly. And so the HELOC itself, when it functions as a checking account, is it can never go positive. You can never have a positive balance on a HELOC. It can only ever be zero or negative because it's a, it's a debt instrument. And so as your income goes in, if you have a, a $5,000 income event, well, you better deploy $5,000 of that somewhere, right? Because you can't have a positive number in that HELOC. 
And then because the HELOC has extra room on it, you're paying all your bills right out of that. Well, then when an income event comes in, you're going to need to send more money out, especially if you have a, a relatively high discretionary income. You know, if you've got a thousand or two thousand bucks a month that you're playing with, this thing is really powerful. But the way that I describe it to people is, you know, if you're if you're living relatively paycheck to paycheck, or you have a little bit of discretionary income, call it a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars, five hundred dollars a month. I want you to imagine that you have one of those desktop shredders that you can do a couple sheets of paper at a time. That'll help you shred your debt. Maybe not as fast, but it'll shred it. If you have a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars a month, now you've got like one of those kind of mega shredders where you can put a whole you know booklet in and it'll take care of it. But if you've got you know five grand or ten grand a month in discretionary income, this is like a tree grinder and you can get through a mortgage in months, like 18 to 24 months. And when you do that, you save hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest. You create tons of liquidity and equity and you create the ability to go invest in more wholesale type investments. So let me pause there because I know there's always questions. Yeah, I'm just thinking through it. I'm just, I want to make sure I understand the connection between what's different, what you're doing different there versus if you've got the extra $5,000 a month and you just write a check against your, you know, for your mortgage to paying it off or whatever high interest debt you have. Yep. It's, you know, it's very similar, Justin, like you could just take the extra five grand and put it against your mortgage. The advantage of the HELOC, number one is it's liquidity. So if you made a $5,000 lump sum payment to your mortgage, the mortgage is a one-way street. The money goes in, but it never comes out again until you refi or you sell your home. The HELOC, the home equity line of credit, is a two-way street. Money comes in, money goes out. And so having a HELOC is really important because if you put five grand in and all of a sudden you need a new furnace or your wife decides the car needs to be replaced, in the back of your mind, you may be like, oh, well, shoot, I just put five grand in. When you're using the shred method, you just look at the HELOC and go, oh, well, we have liquidity. It's right there. So the big difference, and this is another question people ask often is, I want to keep that money in savings. It makes me feel safe and secure. It's an emergency fund or what have you. But is there a difference between having five grand in a savings account that earns maybe a quarter of a percent if you're lucky and having five grand in equity in your property that you have access to through a HELOC? And the reality is that the five grand in equity in your property accessible by a HELOC is actually a better uh, decision for you financially because of how much you accelerate the amortization table on your mortgage. Because one $5,000 lump sum payment might accelerate 15 or 20 payments. So if somebody has a $1,000 house payment, you just avoided $20,000 in house payments by making a $5,000 one-time lump sum payment. And obviously we want all listeners to take any advice with a grain of salt. I'm just trying to think through this strategically like in my own personal scenario. Is there, are there any recommendations or guidelines, Adam, when you're telling people to use this strategy? Like, you know, if someone's already super leveraged on their mortgage, they just took their mortgage out last year, you probably wouldn't recommend like just maxing out your HELOC and just keeping it at the maximum amount of credit out at all times. Like, do you have any rough numbers or just general advice that you can give to people? Yeah, yeah. And, and this is a great kind of asterisk on this plan because it isn't for everybody. I tend to be fairly contrarian. And, and as a general rule, I think most fire, you know, most fire enthusiasts for sure are pretty contrarian. Like we're not, we're not doing what everyone else is doing. Some of the numbers behind this, you've got to have discretionary income. 
I mean, there, if you are spending more than you're making on a monthly basis, it just flat out doesn't work. So 200 to 500 a month is great. If you've got a thousand bucks a month or more, you'll be blown away how fast the system actually shreds your debt. As far as the HELOC goes, you really need a HELOC that's about 150% of what your take-home pay is on a monthly basis. So if you're taking home five grand, you need 7,500 minimum on a HELOC available to really take advantage. You know, and if it, you can access 10 or 15, it actually does move it along a little bit faster, but it's up to you how much of that you use, obviously. The other piece of it is there needs to be some level of discipline. So, so if you've got two people that are, that are prone to maybe spending and uh, no one's really keeping track of the books, that system doesn't work real well. You got to have one person at least that's like sinking their teeth in, really figuring out how to make this work and becoming sort of what we would call a shred devotee. Like they're, they're a shredder <laughs> through and through. They know exactly what to do and how to do it. Yeah, no, it's an interesting concept. I know like how that feels to have like that one thing you're passionate about. When I jo joined my company and realized that we had access to like the mega backdoor Roth IRA thing, now it's like every time we get a new employee, I'm like, just take 20 minutes, come over here, let me talk to you. Let me show <laughs> yeah. you this. It's crazy. You blow people's mind. So, you know, I know you mentioned that it was your, you know, at the time girlfriend, now wife, who really got you into personal finance, but now obviously you're full throttle in it. Has she came along the journey the same way that you have. Like, it sounded like she was definitely wanting to make sure you're financially stable, but there is like different levels to that, right? There's like people who just want to be financially stable and then people get really passionate about it. Yeah. I would say she's come along. She's come along with me on the ride. She, she fully trusts the decisions that I make, despite the fact that she's not always fully integrated in them as we're making them. So we do, we, you know, I'm sure someone on your show has talked about this at some point. But we do money dates. You know, we'll go on money dates and talk about where we're at. We we do a monthly review of our net worth and look at our spending and things like that. The way that I would describe the two of us together is I tend to try and play really strong offense and she plays really strong defense. So she grew up in a household where they didn't buy anything unless it was on sale and they had a coupon. And and I always I always joke that she grew up in the coupon castle. And she, that makes her the coupon princess because she was raised by the coupon queen, my mother-in-law. She's great at it. She's phenomenal at saving money to the extent like we're, we're going away for the weekend and she will book and rebook hotel rooms because she's checking to make sure the rooms are the cheapest you know, rate she can possibly get. So she's very frugal in that respect. And in my world, in my mind, my mindset around money is we're super abundant. There, there is an, not unending but, but there is definitely a, a perpetual supply of money. And because I believe that, I tend to be more focused on making it. And she's a little bit more focused on not spending it or trying to be more careful about where and how we spend it. The reality, though, is, in answer to your question, Justin, is I think we're all on the pursuit of mastery at some level. And the reality of the pursuit of mastery is it's never ending because when you realize you're pursuing mastery, you realize that you always have beginner's mind. There's more to learn all the time. Uh, you guys are a great example of it. That's why we start podcasts, right? Because we just want to learn more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so in my mind, mastery is like this stair step. And I maintain that I'm probably just farther up the stair step than she is, that she chooses to be, wants to be, cares to be. But that's where I might, because of my study, I just keep going higher and higher up the, the ladder. And she'll come along. She enjoys the ride. 
but she's supportive. That's the main thing. Just making sure she's she's okay with all this craziness. She, not only is she supportive, I feel like she's an amazing team member because I know people who are like, oh, if I can only get my wife to stop spending money, and I literally will say, honey, go spend money. Like, <laughs> you know, splurge, buy something for yourself. You should do it. If nothing else, just to feel abundant. Because I think there's also the other side of five for some people, which is they're so lean and they're so hyper-focused on how little this meal cost or, you know, the stories of like ordering water and a lemon and sugar packets and making your own lemonade at a restaurant, you know, those kinds of things. At some level, it's like, I get it. I, I was probably there at one point, but it also messes with your mind a little bit because you begin to question, am I abundant enough to actually do this? Or why am I scrimping and saving when in my mind, life is meant to be lived still. So you guys sound like the perfect parenting duo. You have the make more, make more dad. You have the save more, save more mom. And I recently rewatched the TED talk you did. And we'll definitely link that up in the show notes talking about Monopoly and playing Monopoly with your kids. So this is kind of, it's going to be a very open-ended question. Uh, a quote that I pulled from that that I really like though, is that money is an abstraction, but has very real consequences. And I'd love to just kind of hear you talk about, you know, in this new generation where we have the Apple Pay, where we have, I think you mentioned the Disney wristband where you literally tap and you can buy whatever you want at Disney. Yes. You know, how are you kind of shaping your kids' minds around money when a lot of times we don't even touch cash anymore? Like people, people don't even know how to, you know, count change because we're, it's everything's on the credit card. Everything's on the phone. So crazy. It, it, you know, I love this topic too, because it's, I'm super close to it. I've, I've been on 750 college campuses in the last 15 years. And the students that I met by and large, I would ask them, how much will you have in student loan debt? And they're like, I don't know. And I'd say, venture a guess. I couldn't even tell you. And I'm like, who makes your financial decisions generally? And they're like, well, my parents, I, I don't make any of them myself. And I walked away from most of those conversations my kids were young enough that, that I knew they were not going to be raised that way. And I haven't put this into a TED Talk yet, but I think we've conflated love and struggle. Where as, as parents, a lot of times we're like, I don't want my kids, I love my kids, and therefore I don't want them to struggle. And I, I maintain today that I love my kids and I want them to struggle. And the reason I want them to struggle is when you financially struggle, when you realize that money isn't everywhere and always flowing at your fingertips. And the subtext there is that children's income is not equal to parents' income. You know, I have, I have some very, very wealthy friends whose kids are like, dad, how come we don't have a house in Montana? How come we don't have a private jet that flies us over there? And I was like, you should be seriously concerned because your, your kids, they don't know lack. They don't know what it's like to not have all this. And the fear is that they will always assume that dad's going to help them out or it's going you know, to be there. So for our kids, you know, at a very early age, we said, we're going to give you money. It's going to be allowance. It's based on chores that we all do to keep the house running. And it's probably money that we would spend on you anyway, but now you're going to spend it. So you have to manage it. You have to keep track of it. You have to realize it's finite. And real, realistically, what happened was, they started saving money based on some of the values and, you know, candidly rules that we put in place. And once they started saving and they hit $500 in savings, they were like, well, I'm going to hit a thousand. And it was like, well, I'm going to hit 2000. And I said to my daughter, who's about to leave for college, your goal should be to have 10 grand in the bank before you leave. 
And so now she's like, okay, I'm on this track where I'm going to put away 10 grand. For my boys, I have a 13-year-old who's you know close to probably three grand or 3,500 in an account. And I said, okay, now it's time to, we need to invest this. And we need to look at crypto. We need to look at all these things to get you interested and excited about it. And I think that's the main takeaway is that kids get it when you allow them to get it. And more parents need to actually engage their kids in a way where like, hey, make your own, make your own mistakes. Here's 50, you know, there's 50 bucks in allowance a week or a month or whatever you can afford. But now you got to buy your friend's birthday presents and you got to buy tickets to a game when you go. And you got to, if you want to go to Dairy Queen or go donuts, go get donuts. That's on you. That's not on me. And they do, and they make really great decisions when they do it. And all of those are, you know, just teaching moments. Yeah. I mean, I think the struggle part thing is interesting because I think there's countless stories where somebody did struggle and they look back on it and they reflect on it and they think, oh my, that's the best thing that ever happened to me that I had to figure it out on my own. But yet at the same time, like you said, as we see a lot of parents who look at their children and they just think, well, I'm not doing the best for them if I make them struggle, even though they know they probably struggled and that was good for them. I know for me, like the fact that my parents didn't have a penny saved for me to go to college was the best thing that ever happened to me. At the time, I wasn't excited about it, but you know, <laughs> and so like not all the time is it is it like intentional, but if you know that tool works, even if you have the money to give your children, you can still choose to either withhold it or to, like you said, kind of turn some money over to them and make them use it and make their own decisions. But as we're talking about kind of educating the next generation youth, you mentioned you go to all these college campuses. Just kind of curious, like, you know, what led you to doing that? What is it that you're talking to these college students about? I know you, you know, you mentioned some of the questions you ask them, but like, what is that you're really trying to get in the heads of these college students? What started it for me, honestly, Justin, was I was working for monster.com, the job search company. I was speaking on high school and college campuses. And the, the message we were delivering was one of making high school count, making college count. And it was more about studying, getting to know your professors, being engaged, getting good sleep. It was super lame, in my opinion. Like even, even, As I delivered it, there were times I was bored. But what I was excited by were the questions that students would ask afterwards, because some of them would come up and say, hey, my grandma gave me two grand. What should I do with it? And they would say, uh, my parents haven't told me a thing about money. So I'm just curious, how, what do, how do credit cards work? And I went to the folks at Monster and I said, there needs to be a money program. We need to deliver a money program around this. And they're like, eh, hard to find sponsors and we're not interested and blah, blah, blah. So fast forward three years, I and a partner started talking about it. And he's like, do you still have that money program in the back of your mind? I said, yeah, I could probably write it over the weekend. And he goes, let's write it. Let's write a book about it. And essentially the message that we were giving to college students was there is a game that we all play with money and we are playing it every day, whether we believe it or not, we are always playing the money game. And the reality that I found was that most students didn't know the rules of how to play. Many of them didn't even know they were playing the game with money. And so the message really was, Hey, you are playing a game with money right now and you're either winning the game or you're losing the game. And the reason you're losing is you don't know the rules. So here are the rules. And we, the rules very simply were things like, if you can eat it, drink it, or wear it, it doesn't go on plastic. And these were very specific for college students, right? Like don't put on credit cards things that are consumable because you're paying for them years into, you know, years into the future. One of them was 
Uh, if you do for two years what most people won't do, you can do for the rest of your life what most people can't do. And so I would tell them, if two years you spend applying for scholarships, you'll probably never pay another student loan in your life because you'll have your entire college career paid for. So we were given like really concrete things to do. And amazingly today, I run into students. I mean, some of the students that I talked to early on in my career are now like in their mid thirties and they'll come up to me and they'll say, you can eat it, drink it or wear it. It doesn't go in plastic. And I'm like, this blows my mind that some of these things <laughs> that we said still stuck. You leaving monster.com actually made me think of one of your YouTube videos that I watched and it was about shared ownership. And I didn't really have a term for why I really hated my corporate job toward the end before I quit. And that's like exactly it. I just feel like I didn't have that at all. I'm not going to spoil it though. I want you to hopefully kind of explain it to the audience. And then was that the case with monster.com? Is that why you ultimately left? It was. Gosh, yeah, totally was, <laughs> Cody. I mean, the, the, the programs that were being delivered were written by, and nothing against this gentleman, but he was a very analytical guy who did not understand or write in a, in a way that 14-year-olds were responsive to. And so, you know, 14-year-olds generally are the most apathetic human beings on the face of the earth anyway. And so trying to hold their attention, we were like, hey, we need to spruce this up. And how do we do this? And they're like, no, nope, not interested in your, your input. So to, to give your audience a little bit of backdrop on shared ownership, if you were in a situation where it feels like someone else is making decisions and you are dealing with the consequences of those decisions, that is a lack of shared ownership. And in most organizations today where that comes in is, you know, the boss or the senior level folks make a decision they push it down to all the folks in the organization without ever asking for input or guidance or how will this impact you guys? And then the people on the front line are like, why are they, why are they doing this? This is dumb. This software doesn't even do what we want it to do. And they just spent tens of thousands of dollars implementing it. It happens in families where someone buys something without talking to a significant other. And the spouse is like, why did you spend that money? We were saving that for blah, 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 blah. Now I'm, gonna fa I'm faced with the consequence. And so shared ownership really requires three things. It requires information. It requires decision-making. And it requires consequences. And when you understand all three of those, and everybody's on board on all three of those, now it's a shared ownership kind of decision. And I will say that that model, it works well with kids. It works really well with my wife, you know, because we'll, we'll talk about like, hey, this was not a shared ownership decision or, or we need to have some shared ownership with the kids. So let's talk to them about this vacation that we're talking about. Because the last thing we want to do is be like, okay, kids, we're going to Minneapolis. And they're like, oh, Minneapolis sucks. I don't want to go to Minneapolis. <laughs> so instead, we're like, where would you like to go? We're thinking these three places. Here's the different you know, decisions we need to make as a family. Here's the consequences of those. And then once we've made it, it's like, okay, all hands on deck and, and now we're good. So it's, it's a really powerful model when people understand it. You know, as you're talking about this, it's kind of in a roundabout way. It made me think of this documentary I was watching uh, where they're kind of doing a study. And the reason why people don't like make good decisions for their future self, like they don't, they can't see them. They don't know who they are. They're a stranger to them. And they kind of did a study where, you know, they, they looked at, took an image of them, aged them, and then had them kind of like carry on a conversation with them, which sounds kind of weird, but it, it gave them a person to think about. And I know you're talking about these situations where maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a family member, but if we have that shared ownership with our future self, it seems like that could be huge. Like we're sitting there like, 
I'm making decisions that are giving that person consequences that I don't have to feel. That's a bad shared ownership. And if we can kind of get in that mentality of like putting your being empathetic to your future self and thinking about the, you know, the, the things that we're pushing downhill to them that they're going to have to take care of. It seems like that could be kind of like a huge thing for people's mentality when they're making these decisions. Not only that, but a really cool app, you know, like an AI app. If you could age record yourself, like, hey, don't do stupid shit like this. And, and you're, you're aged at some level. I think that would be really cool. I also maintain, to your point, Justin, that one of the things that keeps people from succeeding financially is they don't have a long enough time horizon. So they'll think maybe two years out or five years out is long term. I'm looking out going 40 years from now, what is life going to be like? And, or how do I want life to be like? And what do I need to do today in order to get there? Going back to the Warren Buffett example, you know, the reason he's worth $90 billion is because he started at age 11 investing and he's had 75 years of investment experience. You know, that's forethought. Like that is a, that is a long-term plan. And I think if we could, if I can inject one thing in my kids, it's saying, I need you to have a long-term outlook on this. Like not what's a year or two years or five years out. What does 20 years from now look like? And are you willing to do the work today that makes 20 years away amazingly simple? Something else I think that's really important that I've also heard you talk about is core values. And, you know, you have to have some direction. You have to have some hierarchy of like, this is the most important thing to me for X, Y, and Z reasons. This is the second tier. This is the third. I think it was five, if I remember correctly, that you generally recommend to people. You know, how do you go about building your core values and how can our audience go and build their own set? Yeah, great question. The, the podcast that I've been doing since about 2015 is called Build a Bigger Life. And it, it was generated from the idea that we should all be building a bigger life, not a bigger lifestyle. And the reason that I said it was I saw a lot of students get out of school and they would immediately lifestyle up. They'd get the car, they'd get the house, they'd get clothes, they'd go out to eat, they'd take trips. And when they did that, they would often have a really small life. They were working all the time didn't feel like they could take time off. There was no savings. They felt stress and pressure. And I had a really big life. Like we, we can travel. You know, at the time my wife was working three days a week. She bumped down to two days a week. I was working, you know, maybe 80 to hundred days a year doing speaking gigs and creating content. And it felt like there was this really big life to be had. And so I wrote a book called the build a bigger life manifesto, which was based on the interviews that I was doing through the podcast. And in the very first chapter of the book, Cody, there is a values foundation building uh, worksheet. So if you go to buildabiggerlife.com, you can download the form that will actually walk you through the five, you know, the steps to get to your five core values. And I, I really maintain that if you're frustrated in your job, or you feel like life could be more, or it's not giving you what you're looking for, it's a high likelihood that you're probably not living into those core values. There's two or three that are probably off. And in the middle of quarantine, connection is one of my core values. And I 100% knew that I was not getting my connection value satisfied. And so I started like encouraging small group meetups. And you know, once I did that, then it felt good. I was meeting with entrepreneurial minded folks and we were sharing ideas and, and it was just like, hey, let's do a whiteboard session for whoever's interested. And typically five to 10 people would show up and we'd have these amazing meetups. But it was all because I was feeling just weird. 
And I looked at my core value list and I was like, well, connection, that's it. I'm just not connected to enough people. So Adam, this has been like an awesome interview. You've had so much good information and I know there's going to be a lot of listeners who want to try to look for some of your resources, whether it be some kind of like workshops they can do, some videos they can watch to help them try to build this like bigger life that you're talking about out there. Where's the best place for them to do something like that? So the single best place is probably at adamcarroll.info. So if you want info on me, very simply, Adam Carroll with two R's and two L's dot info. You know, as I talk about the shred method, the shredmethod.com, we have a free training there, which people can go through and learn all about how to go find the HELOC, the right HELOC for you. There's actually a piece of software that helps run all the calculations that will tell you what to do with your money in real time. And that's found at Shred My Mortgage. But the shredmethod.com is the first place to go for that. And then obviously, Cody's watched a few YouTube videos. So if you search out Adam Carroll on YouTube, there is a singer-songwriter from Austin, Texas. That is not me. And there's also a Formula One race car driver by the same name. Also not me. But you can find me in there. And specifically on YouTube, Mastery of Money is the channel where I do a lot of money-type content. And then under my name, Adam Carroll Speaker, I think is what it is. I do a lot of just the random other stuff with culture and leadership and, and whatnot. But adamcarroll.info is probably where I'd send people first. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely link everything in the show notes so people don't have to, you know, sift through country songs and <laughs> Formula One races to, <laughs> to figure out that it's not you. But I just want to thank you again so much for coming on, Adam. I've like, known about you for a long time. We haven't unfortunately had the chance to connect until just now. Hopefully next time it's in person, but just want to really say thank you so much for your time today. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. It's super meaningful. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.